you're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast on the 5x5 network. You're listening to episode 315 and I'm your host, Brittany Martin. Hilary Stoves Krause is a co-owner and full-stack software developer at Rails Shop 10 Ford Consulting in Madison, Wisconsin, United States. She came to tech by way of childhood website building, aka a Buffy the Vampire Slayer fan site to be exact. Hillary volunteers regularly with multiple tech and community organizations and co-runs a local women in tech group with more than 2,000 members. She loves board games, garlic stuffed olives, and bourbon barrel-aged stouts. She'll read any fantasy or sci-fi she can get her hands on. Welcome to the show, Hillary. Thanks. Great to be here. It's wonderful to have you. Hillary, what is your developer origin story? You know, I used to think that it was kind of unusual, uh, but the more that I've done public speaking and gone to conferences and, and done organizing in the tech space, the more I realized it's actually really common for a specific subset of folks in tech. And by that, I mean primarily women. So I started out you know, my, my first interest in tech came when I was 12 years old and we got a computer for the first time. And it was back when computers were custom built, right? You couldn't just go in and buy one version of a Mac, right? You had to like have a computer shop, build a computer for you based on the specs that you wanted. And my sister and I were really fascinated by this, my twin sister. So we kind of started playing around. We're having a lot of fun. And I don't even remember how it started, but we ended up building... A couple of different websites, as you mentioned, based on our favorite TV shows at the time. And uh, the first one was Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which is still one of my favorite shows. I have all the comics. I'm that person. And it was just so much fun. You know, I mean, we, we had all of the, the stereotypical trappings of, like, mid-90s websites. We had a counter and a guest book. We had, you know, really poor quality gifts. Um, just all of it. And it was so much fun no one told me that could be a job. No one. I had no idea. My mom even, you know, I've talked to her about it since. And she was like, oh, I just thought it was this fun little hobby that you had. I didn't think anything would come of it. And I can't really blame her for that. But at the same time, you know, all of the messaging about being a programmer or being in tech, all of that was aimed at men, specifically white men, boys, right? I mean, you think even movies, like there were, you know, Hacker stands out to me because there was a woman who was doing coding, but that was pretty unusual. That was definitely not the norm. And so this just never occurred to me that it could be a career that I could pursue. So I went into journalism instead. My mother was a journalist and, you know, I really like language, which again, I think kind of plays into the, the programming aspect. And when I graduated from college and started working in media, that was around the time that a lot of newspapers sort of realized that they needed a website, but I had no idea how to go about implementing that. And so I just kind of, you know, it came out like, oh, I have some experience with that. Uh, I worked, my last job in, in journalism, I was working as a radio reporter at an NPR station, and I was literally teaching my coworkers how to do HTML. The CMS that we had at the time for our station website, you, you couldn't even add a picture, right? We were putting images in tables. I mean, it was... <laughs> It was something else. Um, but just kind of doing that made me sort of remember this this childhood love that I had. And I started, you know, doing a lot of a lot of integration of sort of basic tech skills into journalism. So 
working with huge databases for investigative stories, uh, connecting with Google's API to do interactive maps, things like that. And it sort of got to the point where I realized a couple of things. One, I liked that stuff more than I was given the time to explore it. Two, there are no jobs in journalism. <laughs> uh, the pay was terrible, you know, and, and really what sort of I'd kind of been, you know, I'd been floating in my head for a while. Like, do I want to keep doing this for the rest of my life? Do I want to do more tech? Do I want to find a job at a different outlet that would, you know, media outlet that would allow me to kind of continue to combine the both? And what really sort of made, like, cross that bridge for me was one of the last stories that I did as a reporter. I went to a, a I was in the time I was living in Lincoln, Nebraska, working for Nebraska Public Radio, and I went to a small college outside the city that had only women faculty at its computer science department. So the story was just kind of, but, but most of their students were male. And so the story was looking at, well, how, where is this disconnect coming from? You know, what's causing this disparity? And while talking to the professors and then one of the, one of the students who was a woman, it just kind of all came rushing back, right? And I remember thinking like, this is such a prevalent issue. Why aren't people doing more about this? Why are we still fighting these same battles, you know, why isn't this getting better? And just kind of realizing, well, you're part of the problem to a certain extent, right? Like you liked to do this. This was something you enjoyed. And yet here you are not pursuing that as a career, not, you know, using your, your interest and aptitude to be in programming. And so, you know, a lot of, there were a lot of other factors that kind of played in, but that was one of the big ones. And so I <laughs> quit my job. <laughs> And kind of took a year off, so to speak. I worked as a bartender and a nanny and just kind of thought about, well, how do I want to even do this career change? How do I even want this to happen? What is it going to look like? Is this what I want to do? Ultimately decided it was. Went to a full stack coding boot camp for three months. And now I'm a programmer. And it's been five years. I started as an intern at my company almost exactly five years ago. I think we're like a month, a month shy of five years. And then last summer I came on as a co-owner. So... It was a good choice. I'm very happy that I made the switch. Um, that is a wonderful story. I am <laughs> <Yeah>. so <laughs> jealous of developers who have a background in journalism because I notice that their pull requests and their documentation tend to be amazing. Well, I am curious, what is your specific experience with Ruby on Rails? So that was the, uh, when I was looking at boot camps, you know, there are so many and there's so many different kinds and they all cost different amounts and some are front-end and design, some are just front-end, some are just back-end, and really having very hodgepodge tech experience, I didn't know what I wanted. And so I, I kind of stopped to, tried to think about it from a different, instead of like, what languages do I le want to learn? I tried to think like, well, what kind of job do I want to have at the end? And I knew I wanted to work with startups. I wanted to work at a small company. I didn't want to work for like a bank or an insurance company or anything like that. And so then I kind of did some some research on, well, what what are the languages that are used at startups? And then how can I learn that language? And I saw a lot of good things about Ruby and Rails. Um, I liked that it was written to, or it was created, you know, to sound kind of Englishy. again, being someone with a writing background that was appealing. And, uh, and I just really liked what I saw about the community itself. So there happened to be a bootcamp that taught Ruby and Rails full stack that actually one of my really good friends from college was a teacher at. And it was in Nebraska, you know, and I was kind of like, well, I don't really want to go back to Nebraska. I've kind of, I've done that, I've been there, done that. I'm sort of looking for something different. And he's like, Hillary, I think you should just apply. 
go through the interview process, I think, I think you'll find it's a really good fit. And I remember in my interview, this is for Omaha Code School, which doesn't exist anymore, but I remember in my interview, the, the other instructor, um, who's Indian American, and my friend is, uh, went to a deaf high school, and, uh, they, you know, he talked about like entry points to marginalized communities and things like that. And I was just like, this, this is perfect. This is exactly what I want. Like, this sounds like a really, really good fit. And I loved my experience. It was a really great program. Um, so that was kind of my entry into Ruby and Rails. It was, it was deliberate to the extent that it could be given how ignorant I was of most of the tech industry. But I'm really, really grateful that that's what I chose because the community has just been phenomenal. And I think especially for, for second career folks and newcomers, it's just so welcoming and there's so many resources and everyone seems really willing to help you level up instead of trying to be competitive or force you to prove yourself. And that's so refreshing. No, it's so great. And it sounds like you and I probably learned to code around the same time. For me, Rails 3 was just starting to turn into Rails 4. And so I was like right on the cusp where as I was learning to code, we were learning how to upgrade to Rails 4. And it was very exciting for the community at the time. I just remember the energy around Rails 4. And it was just, I I felt like I really picked a framework that I was excited about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. We have a, a junior who came on board in the fall, who's been phenomenal. And she studied uh, economics, I think quantitative economics in school. And then, you know, likewise decided to switch in, into doing more tech. And she came to Ruby through a, um, I think it's called Ruby Me. It's, the, it's where they pair you up with a mentor and you work on, on open source Ruby projects together uh, remotely. And she just loved the experience and and I think that's just a prime example. Right? And she's been a huge asset to the company and is really eager to learn, has a great attitude. And I, I think, you know, it's true that you like attracts like, right? If you put out really good energy and you're welcoming and you, and you build these programs for folks to get into Ruby and Rails, you're going to attract really great people who will then, you know, further that ecosystem and build upon it and make it even better. Totally agreed. So can you tell us the origin story behind 10 Forward, including what are the best aspects of being a consultant? Oh, I have a lot of thoughts about this. <laughs> so 10 Forward started seven and a half years ago. Um, and the the founder, Brian Sampson, was basically, you know, I mean, it was, it was during the, um, it was like latter part of, of the recession, I believe. Um, I don't remember all the details, but I know that he ended up going freelance and started a company. And... It's named for the uh, the bar on the Enterprise from Star Trek, Ten Forward. We have a lot of Star Trek jokes in the office. Uh, and then he, you know, classic story, had too many clients, did too much work, hired some more people, kept getting more work, kept hiring people. And here we are now, you know, seven and a half years later. Love being a consultant. I think, you know, I was a freelance journalist for a while and it's it's very similar in that you're always working on new projects, um, especially being at a small company, there is a certain amount of flexibility over what you work on. So we encourage our, you know, we encourage our staff to be very well-rounded. You know, a lot of our folks, everyone knows full stack. A lot of people also know or are learning mobile on top. Um, but if there's something you're interested in, you really have the space to dive into it and sink your teeth into it. Like we're we're really flexible. We're we're agile in all senses of the, of the word, and I think that is a huge benefit, especially for earlier career developers, because you get you get the structure of having 
you know, a lot of tiers of experience to learn from, but then also you get to try your hand at a lot of different projects. So that, that's something that really appeals to me and that I really enjoy. I think working with startups too, it's just exciting. You know, you, you get to hear about all these really, you know, groundbreaking and innovative ideas and be a part of it from the beginning. And you get, with a lot of our clients, they, they don't necessarily understand tech and that's why they're coming to us. They have an idea, it relies on tech, but they don't have these preconceived ideas of what they want or what it should look like, or, you know, they're really working, they're really willing to collaborate with us and work together. And so I'm not only learning a lot about programming and about tech, but also about running a business and being an entrepreneur. And that's been really exciting too. I do know that, that consulting is not for everyone. <laughs> Some folks just do better, you know, really becoming enmeshed in one specific code base or product and getting to know it really well, know it inside it out and really feel a lot of ownership over that particular part of something. And then the structure too, you know, like we, we have slow periods, we have busy periods and we have slow periods and that can be an adjustment for folks if they're used to something that's more consistent and steady. And then switching between projects too, switching between clients, you know, it does take it takes some adjustment, but I think those are skills that are useful no matter where you work. You know, being able to balance a lot of different projects, being able to interact with a lot of different types of people, being able to solve a lot of different types of problems. And so even if you work at a consulting company and you kind of feel like maybe this isn't the, the route that I want to take for the rest of my career, there are really invaluable lessons that you can learn from that experience that will serve you well no matter what kind of job you work at. I agree. I did about six months of consulting during a transition period in my life, and my experience was very similar to what you just said there. So the reason I brought you onto the show, other than our absolute shared love of Buffy, is that you were going to be giving a RailsConf couch session called Why We Worry About All the Wrong Things. And I'm going to go ahead and read the session recap. Modern humans aren't great at risk assessment. We often blithely ignore which could harm us and are conversely intimidated by things that are quite safe. This inability to recognize threat has vast implications for many aspects of our lives, including our careers. Do you want to be less stressed, make better decisions, learn strategies for identifying and dealing with unnecessary worry? Let's explore the root causes of fear and anxiety together and discover how we can start to deliberately rewrite our instincts. Wow. So first off, Hillary, what kind of fears do we tend to be fixated on as humans? There are so many. Uh, the one that actually sparked the inspiration for this talk was a pretty common fear, which is the fear of flying. I was on a plane and we experienced some pretty violent turbulence. And they warned us beforehand, hey, we're, you know, we're going through a storm. It's going to be a little shaky. We're not going to do service, you know, until we're, we're through the storm. And Everyone around me is is visibly nervous. Um, the person next to me was trying not to cry. You know, people were really upset by this turbulence. It was, and to be fair, it was a kind of turbulence where, I mean, it felt like you were on a roller coaster. Like I was lifted slightly out of my seat. But I love roller coasters, and I I just knew that planes were really really safe. I knew there was so little chance that anything was actually going to happen, and so. <laughs> everyone around me is is panicking and I'm sitting there I'm that asshole with this shit-eating grin on my face because I'm having a really good time like it's like being on a roller coaster it was just fun and that disconnect between our two reactions to the exact same event and especially knowing as I did that flying is just statistically very safe really got me thinking why are people so afraid of something 
that is arguably so safe? And what other things are we afraid of that, you know, we, we quote unquote don't need to be? So that, that was kind of how I started to, to really think about this topic and dive into it. Um, I think the, you know, there are a lot of interesting things I learned about in this talk. I think the, the one that really stands out to me is not only where fear comes from, but also what can influence our fears. And so there's a whole section where I talk about uh, fear amplifiers. So you can take, you know, quote unquote, an ordinary fear, but if you add one or more of these amplifiers, then suddenly it becomes a huge fear. And so just the, the way that, that fear both is and isn't rational. I think really that's kind of at the core of the talk is like, you know, we talk a lot about like, oh, it's an irrational fear or, you know, you should just get over it because this isn't a big deal. And that's just not how our brains work. Like fear is inherently an emotional response. And we have to understand that before we can even hope to, to, to rein it in or to take control of that emotion. And I just think it's, I think it's really fascinating how we can know something is safe and still have this what feels like an instinctive, very physical reaction to that thing, kind of overriding our, the, the logical part of our brain. So what kinds of harmful impact can those irrational feelers cause? Um, first of all, you know, and I think this is kind of, kind of obvious to anyone who's had like an intense fearful reaction is uh, your health, you know, and, and not just in the moment where um, you can feel lightheaded, you know, in the extreme, you can faint, um, you feel very, very tense, you know, you're, sometimes you can have back spasms, right? There's a lot of very physical reactions to experiencing fear. But then over the long term, which I think is even more important to be aware of and to think about is, you know, you, if you have long-term stress and anxiety, fear, it can lead to a weakened immune system. It can damage our hearts, cause ulcers, decrease fertility, it can lead to accelerated aging, even premature death. It can impair the formation of long-term memories, which I thought was really interesting. But when we think about folks who've experienced trauma, you know, which is sort of a, 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 an onslaught of, of fear, anxiety, um, they often have a hard time coming up with clear memories of the incident because we're inhibited from creating memories. The hippocampus, which actually helps with memory formation, is part of our fear response. And it's inhibited when when we have these, these strong waves of fear or these, these long-term experiences of fear and anxiety. Um, and then it can interrupt processes that help us act ethically, which I also thought was fascinating. But it makes sense when you think about it. You know, if you're experiencing panic or acute anxiety or fear, all your body is focused on is getting out of that situation safely, no matter what, right? And I think... I think that's something that we have to kind of give ourselves grace for. And that's not, you know, it might seem like we're acting irrationally or unethically, but we're acting based on instinct, right? And, and rationally, <laughs> right? We want to keep ourselves alive. That is a very rational motivation. And so in a certain light, it does make sense, but it causes us to act in ways that, that we wouldn't normally act if we felt like we had more control over the situation. Um, also, this is probably a good time to state that I've done a lot of research on this, but I'm not a doctor, I'm not a psychologist, so um, this is just my understanding of, of the data that's out there. Well, now that we know the problem, I'm excited to ask you about your strategies, but we're going to take a quick break from a word from our sponsor, ExpressVPN. 
Okay, so we all know how ExpressVPN protects your privacy and security online, right? But there's something you might not know. You can also use ExpressVPN to unlock movies and shows that are only available in other countries. Now that so many of us are stuck at home, it's only a matter of time until you run out of stuff to watch on Netflix. So this whole week, I've been using ExpressVPN to binge Fresh Prince of Bel-Air on Australian Netflix. It's so simple to do. I just fire up the ExpressVPN app, change my location to Australia, refresh Netflix, and that's it. See, ExpressVPN hides your IP address and lets you control where you want sites to think you're located. You can choose from over 100 different countries, so think about all the Netflix libraries you can go through. Love anime? Use ExpressVPN to access Japanese Netflix and be spirited away. And it's not just Netflix. ExpressVPN works with any streaming service. Hulu, BBC, iPlayer, YouTube, you name it. There are hundreds of VPNs out there, but the reason I use ExpressVPN to watch shows is it's ridiculously fast. There's never any buffering or lag, and you can stream in HD no problem. ExpressVPN is also compatible with all your devices, phones, media consoles, smart TVs, and more. So you can watch what you want on a personal device or on the big screen wherever you are. If you visit my special link right now, expressvpn.com slash ruby, R-U-B-Y, you can get an extra free three months of ExpressVPN for free. Support the show, watch what you want, and protect yourself at expressvpn.com slash ruby. Back to you, Hillary. So as I alluded to before uh, we spoke about ExpressVPN, I wanted to ask you, what are your strategies for dealing with anxiety and fear? That's a great question, right? Because it it's helpful to know where fear and anxiety come from and how the process works in our brains, but it's kind of like, great, now what? (laughs) So it turns out there are a lot of different ways that we can sort of, I like to think of it as like rewriting our instincts. And I think the first and foremost, one of them is just accepting that fear is a part of our lives and we're going to make decisions that have poor outcomes, but that's not necessarily because we made a bad decision right? Like the idea of giving ourselves grace because life is hard (laughs) and there's often not a great solution to problems that we're trying to solve. But how can we kind of do the best that we can, right? So I think a lot about this idea of the reflexive versus the deliberative mind, which is reflexive is again, it's our, it's reactionary. So it's I'm going to be hit by a car and we just automatically swerve out of the way, right? We don't think about that. We're not sitting there and deliberating, okay, well, they're coming at me from this angle at this speed and there's a child over here and a fire hydrant over here. So let me just calculate the best path, you know, the least resistance. Like we're not doing that. We'd be dead. (laughs) We react reflexively and that's good. That keeps us alive. But I think really focusing on when are we allowing the reflexive to take over versus recognizing it's happening, pausing, and kind of making that transition to our more deliberative mind, right? I think that's important. So it's it's not really a matter of willpower, but it's a matter of kind of self-awareness, thinking about it, recognizing when it's happening, and then and then kind of pivoting so that we can make more um, sort of log- logical brain decisions instead of fear, emotional, reactionary decisions. So I didn't plan on this, but I'm actually going to share a personal story and we can discuss it in this context. The week before the quarantine, I was driving home from roller derby. It was the mill. It was very late at night. I was in a rural area and I was driving and a truck, the opposite side of the road, uh, came into my lane just head on and I swerved and they took out the back of my car and then he drove off. 
Wow. And I don't know what came over me, but I chased him down (laughs) for miles, holding down my horn. My car was barely drivable. I got to him and uh, called the police and, you know, had to have my boyfriend come out an hour in order to pick me up. And I will tell you that, you know, it's been a month now. I still don't have my car back, but I will tell you it is difficult for me to drive at this point. And I'm Mm -hmm. really trying to work on my fear because there are times now where I'm driving and I see a car in the opposite lane and I can feel my defense system kick in and Mm -hmm. I'm trying to override that. Mm -hmm. And so I completely get where you're coming from. Yeah, I had the same thing. I was in a car accident. Someone ran through a stop sign and and I T-boned them. And anytime that I would see, it didn't have to be the same color, even the same type of car, but if it was was a bigger car, because it was a van that hit me, if it was a bigger car, that was waiting to cross the street on my right side, I would, you get that tension, right? You can feel that adrenaline flood. And it took me a couple years for that to completely disappear, even knowing it's probably fine, right? But, and I, you know, and this is why I I kind of struggle when we talk about like irrational fears, because your body is being very rational. It's like, this is an observed, experienced threat that we want you to be prepared for. So we're gonna heighten your senses, your reaction time. We are preparing you to deal with what we know has been a threat in the past. And yeah, I mean, I think it's just, it's, you know, trying to recognize like, hey, this isn't a threat, you know, deep breathing, like just try to calm yourself. But it's really tough because these are, you know, fear is is embedded in our, in our bodies. <laughs> Absolutely. So tying this back into our listener community, how would you tie these lessons into being a developer? I think there's a lot of ways that these can be tied in. Um, You know, it's everything from, I mean, there there are so many strategies for coping with these. You know, I I think about one example that I like to talk about that I, I usually bring up in my talk is even if you're secure in your job, especially if you're, if you're from a group that is underrepresented, in tech, even if you're secure in your job, you know you've been doing good work, you know the company's fine, you know, whatever the case may be, if your supervisor comes and says, hey, can we talk in my office? I think most of us have that instinctual, like, again, we tense up, right? It's like when you when you see a truck on the opposite side of the lane, we just, we get tense. We think, oh, something bad's gonna happen. I have to be prepared for something bad to happen. And so something that companies can do, you know, from a company perspective is, if we have to talk to someone privately, you know, we try to say, hey, can we talk about something quick? It's good. You're not fired. You know, and it started as a joke, like, hey, can we talk? You're not fired. But it actually makes a huge difference, right? Just that that immediate, you know, like, diffusal of, of a perceived threat. And it's a small thing, but I think there are a lot of things we can do like that. Um, reframing is a huge one. So this is something that comes from cognitive behavioral therapy, which I, I address in the talk. So you know, again, taking that step back, like recognizing when you have a fear response, taking a step back, reframing it deliberately in your mind. Okay, so this is a challenge instead of an obstacle. Um, This is an opportunity for me to grow versus I feel a loss of control. Kind of acknowledging that both can be true at the same time. And it seems so simple, right? But the words that we use, I mean, there's so many studies that have shown that the words that we use have a huge powerful impact on the way that we feel about something. And so that's something that you can do for yourself. Being prepared is a huge one. So there's some great statistics I want to share quick. Uh, 63% of Americans worry about natural disasters. 
which I'm kind of surprised it's not actually higher because of climate change, but still 63%. 78% of those who worry see the value in having some kind of emergency supply kit, which again, makes sense. That seems pretty like a no brainer, right? Only a quarter of people have actually made effort to put together such a kit. So it's, it's that idea that we, we can recognize threat, but we're not always great at dealing with it or addressing it. And that's really hard, you know? I think, I think, I mean, how many developers have side projects that they might never finish, right? We're really good at coming up with ideas. Execution can be a little harder. And so I think really trying to focus on, um, you know, I recognize that I'm having a reaction to this. Where is this coming from? What can I do to prepare for it next time? Or what can I do to, to reframe this? Like all of these, these small behavioral shifts can over time make such a huge difference in how we react to things and, and the levels of fear and anxiety that we experience. Thank you so much for sharing those thoughts and I cannot wait to watch your RailsConf couch session. So Hillary, what are your thoughts on the future of the Ruby and Rails communities? You know, it's interesting. Uh, you always hear, you know, Stack Overflow will release its yearly survey or someone will write a think piece about how, oh, this language is dying or that language is dying. And I remember seeing them that was like, oh, you know, a lot of your people are learning Ruby and Rails these days. What does this mean? And it's, I mean, it's all cyclical for one. And I also think it's kind of like how we, we've tried to grow 10 forward as a company is, is very deliberately. So a lot of consulting companies get you know, like a whale client and they hire a bunch of people and then that contract ends and they have to lay people off. And we've never had to do that and we never want to do that. And I think it kind of is the same, you know, and, and so we're fine being a smaller company because the people we have are great and the work we have is great and the environment is great. And it kind of, I feel like there are parallels to that with Ruby and Rails, where even if we're not like exponentially growing year after year with new people coming into the community, we have a really solid community already. And I think having, having that core base foundation of awesome people doing awesome things, ultimately that what's, that's what matters. And so yeah, and, and numbers aren't, aren't everything, they're obviously something, but I guess I would rather focus on all of the great things we have and that we are currently doing than worry the way that some folks do about, well, what's gonna happen when, or what do we do if, you know, we'll deal with that as a community when it comes, if there's anything negative that comes. And I think we're, we've shown that we're pretty good at that. Um, so I guess there's some reframing in action for you. <laughs> I love that. So Hillary, how can listeners follow you? Uh, I'm on Twitter. I'm, I found that actually I'm not on Twitter as much during this isolation, but usually I, I like to tweet a lot about um, puns and tech and feminism. So if you like those things, you should follow me, uh, Hillary SK. And um, folks can feel free to email me to um, hillarysk at 10forwardconsulting.com. I love chatting with Railsers and Rubyists, and I love this topic, and I just love people. So seriously, feel free to reach out. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to stop by on the show today. Listeners, we'll be back with you with a new episode next week. Thanks, Hillary. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast on the 5x5 network. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded to stay in the loop on Ruby on Rails and open source software. While you're at it, please leave us a review, and thank you for listening.